You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus chapter 32, you may also want to turn back to Exodus 11 as well and maybe put your bulletin there or mark it some other way. We'll be looking at a little piece out of Exodus 11 and 12 in just a moment, but we are starting a new series today and we're going to be in this series through the month of May, June, and pretty much all of July as well. And it's a new series called Discovering Truths Often Overlooked. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to take biblical stories, biblical stories that if you've spent any time in church, they're probably pretty familiar to you. And we're going to try to take a fresh look at them. We're going to try to take a look at them and and ask God to to kind of extract a little extra nugget of truth, if you will, or, or apply it to us in a little bit of a different way. And to understand that sometimes the more familiar stories that we have, and again, speaking largely to a crowd who, uh, if you've been involved in church from your childhood up, sometimes hearing those things over and over and over again, we become so familiar with them that they don't really challenge us anymore. And some may be here today that this will be the first time you've ever heard this story, and you'll be challenged in a different way than someone who's heard it for the 10th time. But that's the beauty of God's scripture. That's the beauty of the truth of his word is that it is challenging to us over and over and over again. And so as we go through the next few months and this this idea of stories, that's what we're going to be looking at. Just on the off chance that this is the first time you're hearing this story, I want to just do a a real quick timeline. And I'm going to skip over some things in the timeline for sake of the time that we have today. But to tell you how we get to Exodus 32. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph has, has been in charge of, of many things in Egypt. God uh, orchestrated it that he would be put there. Uh, the great famine hits the land. Joseph in, in charge of the grain and the food and really the wealth of Egypt. And, uh, and he, he makes it so that even Israel is fed through the famine. And, and Israel as a people begin to grow numerically. And when we get into Exodus, there's a new pharaoh not a new sheriff in town, but there's a new pharaoh in town. And he doesn't have a connection with Joseph. And he sees how great the people of Israel are beginning to grow numerically. And, and being fearful of that, he begins to enslave them. Put them to work and put them to work for the kingdom of Egypt. And so you have this baby born named Moses. Gets hidden in the, in the bulrushes in the river. Makes his way to the pharaoh's house. Grows up there as a son of the pharaoh. He kills an Egyptian that he sees beating on one of his Hebrew people that he begins to realize are his family. And God pursues Moses, appoints him to be the deliverer of Israel out of Egypt. And after some time and some convincing, Moses agrees. God demonstrates his power through the plagues that he displays over and on Egypt. And then after some time, after they leave Egypt in the Exodus, and after several months of wandering, Moses and Israel arrive at Mount Sinai. That's where God begins to give the commandments and the laws and the regulations for his people. And that's where we are today. That's how we get to Exodus 32. So let's read Exodus 32, 1 through 6, and take a look at what we have in this story today. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron 
and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's three things I want us to see from this very familiar story for many of us. The first is very apparent right from the beginning. The people of Israel, they became impatient. They became impatient. The scripture tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But we, what we need to understand is from chapter 19 through chapter 24 in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel had seen God's presence, seen him demonstrate his great power. They had seen him in a pillar of cloud and fire. They had seen him in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning. In chapter 24, and Moses is relaying words from God back to the people of Israel. In chapter 24, in two places, verses 3 and 7, the people say to Moses, Yes, we agree with God's words. Yes, we'll do what he says. They, that was their entering, if you will, of the covenant with God. In chapter 24 as well, Moses and 73 of the elders and leaders of Israel begin to ascend the mountain and are seen or have experienced God's presence in that moment. And then again in chapter 24, Moses and Joshua begin to ascend even further. He sends everyone else down. And he says to them in verse 14 of chapter 24, and this is important. We'll get back to this in a moment. He says, as you go back down, Aaron and her are in charge. If there's any disputes, take it to them while Moses and or while Joshua and I are up on the mountain. That, that's, that's not even mentioned the Red Sea crossing. It's not even mentioned the, the time when they stopped for water and it was bitter and God made it sweet for them to drink. Not to mention the, the story throughout Exodus where they begin to cry out about their hunger and God literally makes it rain bread from heaven to satisfy them. Over and over and over, they've seen God's presence. Over and over and over, they've seen God's power. And yet, as they've waited for Moses for 40 days and 40 nights, they finally reach a point of impatience. God had showed himself powerful. He had shown himself trustworthy. He had shown himself faithful. But their impatience is now seen as a lack of trust and their impatience is now seen as evidence of their forgetfulness of what God has done and who he is. There's a, there's a Psalm 106. It's kind of a historical psalm that tells bits and pieces of Israel's story. And I, and I want to read to you Psalm 106 verses 19 through 23. Where the psalmist picks up on this idea that in their impatience what it really meant was they forgot God. 
He says, Psalm 106, beginning verse 19. They, speaking of the forefathers, they made a calf in Horeb and, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the gap before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Their impatience was understood as forgetfulness. Their impatience was understood as, as their mind wandering because they, they were tired of waiting on Moses and moving away from understanding that God was still faithful and God was still powerful and God was still looking out for them. And so impatience, as we'll see in just a few moments, often leads to sinful acts. One of the things that's going to happen here in just a moment is we're going to read again that account of them asking Aaron to make this golden calf. But I want us to understand something before we move on from impatience here and understand that impatience is a sin. This is a sinful action of a heart that's not leaning towards God. How can I say that impatience is a sin? Very simply, because patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And so it, it bears understanding that if patience is part of something good that God instills in us throughout His Holy Spirit, impatience, the opposite of it, must be something that's sinful. And there's a contrast between those two things. The patience that we have from the Holy Spirit is seen as an endurance of pain, an endurance of unhappiness. It's seen as a very calm response to issues of suffering, to issues of injustice. In other words, it's being in self-control by the power of the Spirit in times when we typically would want to be impatient. To be impatient, on the other hand, is really just the opposite. Impatience leads to knee-jerk reactions. It leads to sometimes giving up or, or bailing out of something that we're involved in. It prevents us from remembering, as it did with the people of Israel. They failed to remember who God was and what he had done. Impatience will wreck every relationship you have. And it moves us away from faith. Impatience moves us away from faith. Here, here's the way I thought about impatience this week as I was preparing. We've heard the term before, gateway drug, right? And the gateway drug is a drug that we talk about that when someone begins to try it and begins to use it, it opens up the gateway for them then to try harder and harder and harder ones. I believe impatience is a gateway sin. Impatience leads us to anger. Impatience leads us to rebellion. Impatience leads us to self-idolize instead of idolizing God. Self-serve instead of serving God. Impatience leads us to all these other things that we normally would not do if we did not get ourselves in that moment of being impatient, that we can't wait anymore. And I know that's not a very popular <laughs> thing to say because we would really rather just think of impatience as just being this thing that we just kind of struggle with it it's not really sinful but I think impatience opens us up to all manner of other sin Jerry Bridges has a book titled respectable sins confronting the sins we tolerate 
Now, in this book, he's not suggesting that there are sins that are respectable, that we should do them. But he's suggesting, and I think rightly so, that the church often takes some sins to a more different level than they take other ones. Some of them we really harp on day and night over and over and over again. And then some of them we just kind of go, well, that's just, that's just kind of the way I am or that's just kind of the way they are. And in this book, he talks about impatience being one of those respectable sins. And he says this as part of what he writes about this. Some Christians are notorious for being impatient drivers. We can become impatient at the slowness of service in a store, at the bank, or at a restaurant. I, he says, I have to guard against impatience at the post office when I only want to buy stamps, but someone in line ahead of me has 10 overseas packages to mail. He says, you might want to ask your spouse, your teenagers, or a friend who knows you well to help you identify areas of impatience in your life. For after all, we need to acknowledge and repent of our impatience as a sin. Impatience as a sin. Maybe not something you've heard before. Maybe not something that you've thought of before. But I think probably as you think about it, I think for sure as I've thought about it, I realize that it really is that gateway sin that then leads me to other sins if I don't keep it in check. The second thing then that happens is, again, impatience led to wrong action, led to sinful action. Look again at verse 1 from chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. There's two main actions that are wrong and sinful as a result of their impatience. The first one is that they target their leader, Aaron. That phrase, they gathered themselves together. Some translations may say, may use the word assembled. It is a Hebrew phrase that means to rise up in rebellion against a better way for maybe us to understand it would be it is a mob mentality. They gather together as a people and they go against Aaron who has been put in charge while Moses and Joshua are on the mountain and they tell him, get up, arise, do this thing for us because we are impatient and we're tired of waiting for Moses. This was not a gentle request from the Israelite people. This was not a suggestion. This was a, we are many and you are one, and you're going to do what we tell you to do. And their impatience led to that rebellion against leadership. Now, we can fault Aaron here and say he shouldn't have given in, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Or we can acknowledge there's incredible pressure when you're in leadership. If you're here today, you're listening today on our live stream, and you're a, a leader in any way, shape, or form, in, in your workplace, uh, a leader in your home, uh, a leader in an organization that you're a part of, a leader in your church, people-pleasing is an issue. It is an issue that every leader deals with and has to learn and figure out how they're going to handle it. And so Aaron does bear some responsibility here, but understand there's responsibility on these people themselves. They put him in a position where he had to make a decision. And it was either going to be a decision that they wanted 
or it was going to be a decision that God wanted Aaron to make. The other thing that I want to, see about, I want to say about this before we move on to the second part of their, their sinful action is this. Aaron's by himself. Back in Exodus 24, 14, as Joshua and Moses ascend the mountain and they send all the rest of the leaders back down, I mentioned it earlier, Moses tells them, Aaron and her are in charge. If you have any disputes, go to them, the two of them. There's no mention of her in Exodus 32. Maybe he hurried up and got out of Dodge when he saw what was going on. But Aaron is by himself, and when you are by yourself as a leader, it becomes much easier to give sway to the demands of the people. In their impatience, the people singled out Aaron, and they rose up in rebellion, not only against Aaron, but against Moses, and even more importantly, against God. And in that, the second thing they did was they created a substitute for God. Rise up and make us gods that will go before us. Rise up and make us gods that will take us on the rest of the way of our journey. There's no doubt while they were in Egypt all those many years, they were constantly exposed to idol worship. And as a matter of fact, throughout Egypt, um, the worship of the bull or an image of the bull was something that was very common and very popular throughout Egyptian understanding and culture. In Joshua, in chapter 24, as Joshua gives that famous speech of choose whom you will serve, he lends credit to this understanding. In in Joshua 24, 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in, in, in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He makes it clear in that evidence that that there was an understanding that while they were in Egypt, they were exposed to, and not only exposed to, but possibly participated in some of this idol worship. And so that helps us to understand why they say to Aaron, make gods for us. They were bringing what they knew before God saved them into their life now. It's an excellent point for us to gather for those of us who are now saved in Christ. We must be careful of what we bring from our life pre-Jesus into our life post-Jesus. Because it can be something that can lead us to sin. So here's, here's where Aaron, quite honestly, should have put his foot down. Back in Exodus 14, when they get to the Red Sea, and they turn around and they see Pharaoh's army approaching, the, the Egyptians or the Israelites start to say, oh, they're getting closer, they're coming. Why'd you bring us out here? We're going to die. At least back there we had graves that we could have died in. And Moses steps up as a leader and says, uh-uh, we're not doing this. If you turn back now, you're going to fail to see the power of God and the faithfulness of God in your life. And Moses, as a leader, does not allow that return. Aaron fails. He should have put his foot down. Sometimes the will of the people that you're leading need to be redirected. Now, it doesn't mean that leadership is a dictator. It also doesn't mean that as a lead, in leadership you're a pushover. But sometimes the people don't know what they need. Moses 
recognized it at the Red Sea and said, nope, you're not going back. Aaron here, perhaps because he was alone, perhaps because he had his own doubts, perhaps just because of the overwhelming number of people who had risen up against him, he did not take that moment to lead them the way they needed to be led. Their impatience led them to seek a shortcut, an alternative, and honestly, it placed them within great jeopardy for God or with God. There's three distinct issues I think the story gives us to understand this action. One is their impatience. Two is that familiarity that they have with idols from being in Egypt. Three, quite honestly, is because Moses has not returned. And they had in their minds connected Moses with God. And if Moses is not back, then God must surely not be with them. We could do a whole sermon series on connecting people with God and putting them on that same pedestal, couldn't we? Maybe we'll do that one next. But I think a fourth point that's equally important, though it's not explicitly stated here in Exodus 32, is something we've mentioned again already. There was a lack of trust in God. Time and time and time and time and time again, they had seen him work. They had seen him come through. They had seen him provide. And in their impatience, it led them to sin. So what happened, thirdly? Well, God's good gift to them became an idol. Look at 32, verses 2 through 4. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Have you ever wondered where the gold came from? These folks were slaves living in Egypt for centuries. And what we know about people who are kept as slaves is they don't typically have the opportunity to build wealth while they're enslaved. So where did the gold come from? If you marked Exodus 11, look back at that for just a moment. Exodus 11, 1 through 3, if you didn't, I'm just going to read it and you can follow along with my words. Right before the final plague, the Lord says to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Not Israelite neighbors, but Egyptian neighbors. We'll see that in just a second. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. If you want to look over in Exodus 12, the next chapter, beginning verse 33. This is after the 10th plague has happened. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered 
That does not mean that they went to their Egyptian neighbors and got a piece of gold or an earring. That means everything that the Egyptians had that it was a wealth of gold and silver in their clothing, they took it all. If you're a big pirate fan, you understand. I don't mean the Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean the historical pirate figures. You understand that when a pirate plunders, he doesn't leave anything behind. And God had seen fit for the people of Israel to receive all this gold and all this silver and all this clothing and all this wealth from the people who had enslaved them. And what's the first thing they do with it? They take part of it and turn it into an idol. God had seen fit to give them a good gift, a good gift that they then turned into an idol. What is an idol? Well, throughout the ancient world, of course, the Old Testament, even the New Testament, idols were these carved, formed, graven images or personifications of people or gods or things that people worshipped. And I don't know about you, but I've not seen any temples set up in central Kentucky where people are going and bowing before graven images or metal images or anything of that nature. And because we live in this type of culture, I think we tend to push off this idea that any of us could be guilty of idolatry, that any of us have idols in our lives. Yet, Webster's Dictionary, as it begins to define an idol, one of the pieces of the definition says this, an object of extreme devotion. Don't for a moment think that I or you are incapable of taking a good gift from God and showing it such devotion that it becomes an idol even over and above him. Every single one of us are able to do that. When we looked at that passage about the rich young ruler back in the first part of April, I mentioned in those messages that Paul talks in Ephesians 5 and then again in Colossians 3 verse 5, and he talks about coveting, which is greed. Coveting is in the Bible is not just, oh, I wish I had that. Coveting is, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. And in those two passages, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, and Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, coveting, greed, is idolatry. And we are people who can be idolatrous in so many areas of our lives if we're not careful. We can be idolatrous for power. We can be idolatrous for wealth. We can be idolatrous for status and image. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not an anti-social media person. I, I don't, I, I'm not saying the world's going to crumble because Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and things exist. But I do say to you, man, there's a danger when generations now are growing up being concerned with, oh, how many likes do I have? How many followers do I have? Am I an influencer? idolatry achievement our health our wealth our beauty a particular way of life your marriage can become idolatrous children can become idolatrous there are personal idols there are national idols there are material idols there are intellectual idols there's no shortage of idolatry in our world And it is such a slippery slope to go from appreciating God's good gift and turning it into an idol. 
And what happens when that happens in our lives is that idol now becomes a counterfeit God. One definition this week that I read said it this way, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, or to your identity, it is an idol. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God in those things, it becomes an idol. And you may ask, well, then what leads us to this? And I'm going to tell you, it's our hearts. Our hearts that are not led by the Spirit of God, our hearts that are not led by His promise and His Word and His truth, our hearts that instead at times are led by ourselves, by our own fleshly desires, those hearts are the things that lead us into idolatry. I want to read from Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. And I'm reading it from the New Living Translation because I want it just to be simple, plain English for us to hear today. This is what's written in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. Some of the leaders of Israel visited me while they were sitting with me. The message came to me from the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. He doesn't say they've set them up over here on pedestals to be worshipped. He doesn't say they've built little alcoves in their building to set them up. He says they've, they've set them up in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests? Tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts, fallen into sin, and then they go to the prophet asking for a message. So I will give them the kind of answer their idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture their minds and the hearts of my people who've turned away from me to worship their idols. Therefore, tell them this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent and turn away from your idols. Stop all your detestable sins. For I, the Lord, will answer all, both Israelites and foreigners, who reject me and set up idols in their hearts and fall into sin and then come to a prophet asking for my advice. I will turn against them and make such a terrible example of them, eliminating them from among my people, and then you will know that I'm the Lord. I mean, there, there, are, there are some frightening passages in the Bible. That's one of them. That God's people were coming to Ezekiel the prophet and saying, we, we, we have an inquiry. We want you to speak. We want you to speak on behalf of the Lord. We want you to tell us, tell us a good word. Tell us something. And God's answer to Ezekiel is, I'm not telling them anything because they think they can set up idols in their hearts that push me out and then they can come to you and think they're going to get something from me. As a matter of fact, he says, it's not going to just end that I'm not going to give them anything. If they don't repent, I'm going to remove them. The human heart, folks, is an idle factory if left unchecked. Our, our culture, our world just gives horrible, horrible wisdom about the heart. These are just a few things that you've probably heard or, or heard people say or maybe seen on, a, seen on a, a, a nice window hanging or a wall hanging or something. Just follow your heart. 
Only do what your heart tells you to do. Be led by the dreams in your heart. That's horrible advice. It is horrible advice to the heart that is not led by the Spirit of God. Some of you who know your Bible well may say, oh, but isn't there that place that says that God will give you the desires of your heart? Yes, there is. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that today. Psalm 37, 4, but here's the whole scripture. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning the condition of God giving you and me the desires of our heart and the condition of our heart not being an idolatrous heart is that we delight ourselves in him. We don't delight ourselves in the marriage. We don't delight ourselves in the family. We don't delight ourselves in the career. We don't delight ourselves in the material gain. We don't delight ourselves in the possessions and the power and the authority and the, and the standing we have in the community. We don't delight ourselves in any of that. We delight ourselves in him. And he writes that in, in that psalm because he understands that when we delight ourselves in him, then the desires of our heart will follow. But when we don't delight ourselves in him, the desires of our heart lead us to idolatry. And this is why, as promised in the new covenant, God promised to give us a new heart. A heart that would bend towards him and a heart that would bend away from self. This is also why we must remember to guard that new heart. For let me remind you, Israel saw God. Pillars of fire, pillars of clouds and smoke, the splitting of the Red Sea, the raining down of bread from heaven, bitter water turned into sweet water. They saw all of that and still in their impatience let their hearts be swayed to take the good gift that he had given them and turn it into an idol. Now, I want to say one more thing about that before we close. Not only did they take the good thing that, they, that he had gifted them, meaning the silver and the gold, and turn it into an idol, but I also want us to understand this. In between the Red Sea and this passage, as Joshua and Moses are on Mount Sinai and Moses was receiving all of this word from God, in those chapters, God not only gives him the Ten Commandments, but also begins to give him all these rules and regulations and laws for how they would live. And then he begins to set up for Moses what it's going to look like when he builds the first tabernacle, the place of God's worship. And what it's going to look like on the inside and what, what things are going to be made to be put in the tabernacle as the place of God's worship. And if you were to go back and read those this week, and I would just encourage you, I just would encourage you to take Exodus, start maybe with the crossing of the Red Sea uh, there in verse in, in 14 and move all the way through where we are today. What you'll find is as Moses is receiving these words, many of the things that God is saying is, is things like this. Take this, build it, and overlay it with gold. Take this and fashion it and make it out of gold. It's not just that they took what God had given them and made them an idol, made an idol out of it. They also took the good gift that God had given them and that was prescribed for worship for him. And they began to worship it for themselves. 
It is so fast. It is so quick for you and for me to take the good gifts of God, the good gifts of God that are supposed to lead us to worship him and to turn them into idols and worship of self. Impatience, reckless, impulsive responses to that impatience, taking God's good gift and turning it into an idol. That's what we see here in Exodus. God's good gifts in our lives are just that. They're good gifts. They're not meant to be idolized. They're not meant for us to have the affections of our heart set upon them. They're there to remind us that God is the affection of our hearts. God, would you look at our hearts today? Would you look at our lives? Would you bring to the forefront of our minds anything, anything that is a good gift from you that we put in a place in our lives that it is not supposed to be? And would you move us to repentance of that today? For your glory, for your kingdom, for your name. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.